I'll read the entire chapter, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand. We see throughout your word your goodness to your people. And I pray that this word this morning would be goodness to your people. And that we would receive it as such. Protect us from vain curiosity. And help us to see the fruit that you would have us to see. The edifying sustenance that is in your word. Lord, there is no edification in giving ourselves to pointless searches of mysteries that you have not revealed. But Lord, there is life and food in the things that you have revealed. So I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see and to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's long been our conviction as a congregation, even prior to having very many other convictions, and underlying the convictions that we now have, it's long been a conviction of ours that the, the best way, the most effective means for long-term growth and unity in a congregation is that at some point and at some time by somebody, we're working our way together through books of the Bible. And I'm convinced, as I've labored for a few years, I'm convinced that this method, while it's not the exclusive method, people who say that it is the exclusive method are wrong, and I've tried to exemplify that in in the past weeks, that this is not the sole method that we are allowed to preach or use God's Word in preaching, but I do believe that this method is uh, the one singular method that guarantees that we don't get to settle down on pet doctrines, and it also does not allow us the convenience of avoiding difficult portions of Scripture, or avoiding difficult doctrines, or avoiding applications that we might not really be comfortable with just yet. And so that being said, we're going to start a new book of the Bible today, and Beginning a new book of the Bible comes with its own set of difficulties. For me, as I've been preparing, and and hopefully you won't feel any of this, but for me, as I've been preparing, I feel like a steam engine train just huffing and puffing, trying to get just a little bit of momentum to start rolling. And today, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. I have uh, these two things that I'm balancing as we move into a, a new book. Foundational hermeneutical principles require that we cover introductory concerns if we are to rightly interpret a book of the Bible. Everybody that comes to the the Bible, as they open it and begin to read, they have some sort of uh, presupposition. Perhaps they simply believe that this book has some spiritual truth that's going to be in some way helpful. Perhaps they go a step further and they open it and they believe that these are the very words of God. Everybody has some sort of presupposition. We're we're coming to it with something. 
And it's covering introductory concerns, basic fundamental principles of hermeneutics that help us move beyond those things into actually learning how to interpret and decipher what the Spirit of God meant when He uh, carried along men to author His Scripture. So we have to cover that stuff. We have to cover basics. At the same time, in the other hand, I'm juggling this fear that I have, for lack of a better term, this fear of wasting a Lord's Day by covering things that are really tedious, perhaps even would be better left for the classroom. Because I do believe that this time is a time of worshiping, of meeting with our God, not simply meeting with new facts. And if we go home every day saying, wow, I learned a lot today, well, we've, that's not the point. We want to meet with God. We want to hear from His Word and come into His presence and learn from Him. And so, as I'm doing this balancing act, I'm taking comfort from Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if that was true for the man of God, Timothy as he led the church, and for every subsequent man of God as they lead churches all around the world, surely it's true for every believer who comes to the Word of God. The, the Word is profitable. And the text of Scripture is profitable not because it's informational, not because it just gives us some spiritual truths. It is profitable because of its source. It's breathed out by God. That's what makes it profitable. The text of Scripture, as it was breathed out by God, we often talk of inspiration, and some men have said it. We, we might, might better um, to say expired by God, breathed out. But as this word is breathed out by God, it didn't come to us or to the writers in the form of a word search where they're just, they get a word here and they get a word there and they get, they get another word and they're waiting for a verb and all of a sudden they got a verb and now they got a sentence. That's not how it came to men. It came through holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit who used their minds and their hearts and their hands to write the message that the Spirit gave to them, including words, phrases, paragraphs, context, the, the overall thrust of a letter or a document. It was all superintended by the Holy Spirit. They, they weren't carried along as if they were in a dark closet and the Spirit just picked up their hand and made them take a pencil and they began to etch. And they came out into the light and, well, lo and behold, this makes sense. It's a message. No, these men were in a context, in, in, a, in a geographical setting, a, in a historical setting with things on their hearts and in their minds and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, not oblivious of or ignorant to those things their surroundings, who they were, what they were, when they lived, to whom they were writing. So when we come to the Scriptures and we believe that all of it is profitable because it's been breathed out by God, all of those things were used by the Holy Spirit. And all of those things are useful for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And any meaning that we get from the Scriptures that's divorced from all of those things is divorced from the Spirit's meaning. So, it's with that little bit of confidence that we can begin shoveling some coal. 
you might not know this, it takes about six to seven hours to get a steam, steam engine train from idle to rolling on the track. We've got videos of it on YouTube. They're not that long. But that's what I feel like. Shoveling coal, getting ready to plot a course through this book. So we have to begin by asking some questions that we should always ask of every piece of Scripture that we come to. Whether we do this out loud, consciously, or whether we do it subconsciously, we're always asking ourselves these questions. First, we must deal with the author of the book. Who wrote this book? Look at verse 1. The end of verse 1 says, John, into verse 2, who bore witness? Verse 4, John to the seven churches. Verse 9, I, John, your brother. If we want to go all the way to the end of the book, Revelation 22, 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Interestingly, that statement is very much like what we read in John 19, 35. He who saw it has borne witness... His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. John liked to make it clear, and wanted you to know that he knew, that you needed to know that he saw it, and he's not telling a lie. He's bearing witness to what he saw. And that's why the earliest attestations attribute this book to the Apostle John, also known as John the Beloved Disciple. And we'll talk more about John in the weeks to come. Our goal in studying through this book is to determine then what exactly John had in mind when he penned these words. That's not divorced from the Spirit's inspiration. As John was carried along by the Holy Spirit, what did John intend to convey? So the author is John. The second question deals with the audience. To whom did John write? We see in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse 11, the seven churches are named to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Again, we know without question that John wrote to these seven churches that were in existence in his day. And we'll see in chapters 2 and 3, each of these churches get their own specific address, all contained in this one letter. Very often you'll hear people refer to the letters to the seven churches. That's incorrect. It's the letter to the seven churches. They all got the same letter. Every church was specifically addressed, but at the end of every letter the Spirit says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And throughout Scripture, that is a, a broad invitation if the Spirit has given spiritual ears to hear, young man in Thyatira, as I read Ephesus's mail, if the Spirit's given you ears to hear it, hear it and apply it. So these letters were, or this letter was given to these seven churches. And the, the form of its writing and the fact that all of these churches would get this same circular letter lets us know that these seven churches that are named here were not meant to be the exclusive recipients of the address that bears their name. So they, they didn't roll it out, the letter, if it came in a scroll. They didn't roll it out and cover up what was written to Ephesus and just read their part. And no, They all read the whole thing. Very much like we see in Colossians. We see this pattern. Colossians 4.16, Paul said, When this letter has been read among you, 
have it also read in the, Laod the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter to the Laodicea, to the Laodiceans. In other words, this was normal protocol. Write a letter, when you get it and you read it, people would probably, be, probably begin to copy it and send out copies of that letter to the other churches that were surrounding and they would say, do you have anything for us? And they would be trading letters almost, like baseball cards. What's interesting here is that there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. We, we see this language, these seven churches, but there were more than seven churches. So we would ask, why is John commanded to write to these seven churches specifically. And there are lots of opinions. Some say that John was sort of the elder in charge of overseeing all seven of these churches. Some say these churches were chosen because they lay in a, a circular postal route that would have been easy to hit. And after they hit those churches, they could then expand out from there. But we also know, and this is important to the entire book of the Revelation, that the number seven carries with it a significance beyond its mere quantity. In, in Scripture, what we call biblical numerology, seven represents qualitative fullness, not quantitative. That would be the number ten. Number seven represents qualitative fullness or completion. And so these seven churches, or the fact that seven churches were chosen lets us know not only that this letter was not exclusive to these seven churches, but this letter is not even uh, exclusive to the churches in that time period. It's been given to all churches in all places throughout the present church age. And at the same time, some of these messages are very specific and had very specific application to those churches. Now that leads us or helps us to go ahead and begin to glean some hermeneutical principles as we read this book. The letter had meaning and application to those churches. The letter has meaning and application to all churches. But the letter has no meaning for any church that it could not have had for those churches. And the letter had no meaning for those churches that could not also transcend time and be useful for all churches. Now this is sort of... Um, we read all of the New Testament this way. We don't come, we, some people don't read this way. We don't come to the letter of James, the epistle of James, and say, well, that was written to the Jews of the dispersion. Keep flipping. We don't do that. Some people do. We don't do that. We read the New Testament this way, but it's interesting that people come to the Revelation and they begin to make interpretive principles that make this book only applicable to the first century or only applicable to sometime in the future. We haven't gotten there yet. But what they do is remove it from being useful at all to the seven churches to which John wrote. And so we have to keep that in mind. That brings us to the date of the book, which is not quite as conclusive. We've seen, there's no doubt about it, the book was written by John. There's no doubt about it, the book was written to these seven churches. But the letter itself does not give us an exact specific date that the letter was written. Some people think that it does, but it doesn't. Almost all Bible-believing scholars have dated the book sometime between 64 and 96 A.D. Sometime in the latter half of the first 
first century. Now within that group, again, remember what I'm calling them, Bible-believing conservative scholars. Within that group, there are the early daters, or the early date-setters, and the late date-setters. The, late, the early date-setters would say this letter was written sometime prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And they have the reasons. The late date-setters say this letter was written sometime, anytime, after the destruction of Jerusalem, but before the death of John. The reason is, and from what I understand, most contemporary early date-setters have to place this book prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. because for them, the whole book is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It wouldn't make any sense for the letter to come out after that event. As a matter of fact, for them, the whole book, all of it finds its culmination in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you don't have an eschatological agenda, then the date is not going to matter very much. And there are those who would say, well, the date doesn't really matter. But if you believe it's about the destruction of Jerusalem, it has to precede the destruction of Jerusalem. But if you don't have an agenda, if we're just letting the letter speak for itself, then we can take guesses and, and let the book itself inform us and give us clues as to when it was written. Like, for example, the cultural setting. We don't look at the date that we need the book to be written. Read about the culture in that date and during that time and then try to find in the book something that sounds like that culture. We read the letter, find out what the culture was like, and then we can look back in history and ask, were there any times in history where it was like that in this area of the world we've already seen in Asia Minor? What was the culture into which John wrote? Verse 9 of this first chapter, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now this is not exhaustive, but just from that one verse, look what we can deduce. First, John is their partner in the tribulation. So there's some tribulation, and he's their partner in it. There's also... The kingdom. Now we might ask, what kingdom? Well, if you've read the New Testament, there's just about one kingdom that matters. It's the one John was in. It's the one that these churches were in. It's the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ has been established. And there's also tribulation. We see that there is patient endurance. John shares with them in patient endurance. And John himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos most would read that phrasing to mean he was put there because he had been preaching the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What that tells us is that Christianity was not well received at this time. We'll see elsewhere in the book that there were some who had been martyred. We have one named in chapter 2, Antipas. One named martyr, but many who had not been martyred. There were some who were promised that martyrdom would be coming, but some who weren't. There were some very affluent Christians living at ease and comfort, and there were some very poor Christians barely surviving. We'll see that much of the trouble during this time period was from the Jewish community, referred to as the synagogue of Satan, 
But we also know that the Jews would not have had the authority to exile John to Patmos. So Christianity is also kind of dis distasteful to Rome as well. So John, just from these, that one verse, and looking a little elsewhere, we can summarize this way. John, the last living apostle, is writing a letter to seven churches, meant to be read in all churches, sometime in the latter half of the first century, during an, an ongoing time of persecution and yet increasing persecution, or, or I should probably say a time of ongoing and increasing persecution. All of the Christians he addresses are not under persecution. They're not suffering, but some of them are. Now, are you a Christian? Are you a part of a church? Have you realized yet that if you're going to pattern your life after the Word of God, your life is not going to be as easy as it is for some people? Have you realized that yet? Have you ever stopped and thought to yourself, man, life would be so much easier for me if I just said, you know what, this is what everybody else does. Most of the professing believers in every church in my community says this and does this. My parents are pressuring me to bend a little bit. I'll just give in. I'll just... I'm not saying full capitulation. I'm not saying you're pressured to become a Mormon. I'm just saying a little bit, just a little bit of a bend in your convictions. And you can think, if I would just give just an inch on this conviction, so many problems would go away. And yet you say, I can't do it. The Word of God will not allow me to do it. Have you ever stopped and thought about how many people we could get in this church if we veered an inch from scriptural regulation, if we relaxed our membership requirements just a little, if, we, if all we required was a quick class, come to the class, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Have you been baptized? Yeah, I've been baptized. Hey, you're in. Great. We're not going to require anything of you. That's all we need. Thank you. And you can put your tithe in the plate as it's passed. Can you imagine how many people we could get to come and then come again for a second visit if we, if we veered just a little? If you're a Christian, a part of a church, recognizing these things, and this letter is for you. It's useful. It's beneficial because that's exactly the context into which John was writing. Christians, some of them very persecuted, some of them only beginning to feel the pressures of persecution, but they were tempted to, to veer just a tad. And they knew if we can veer just a tad, everything will be fine. Notice then by way of exposition the title and purpose of this book. What does John call this letter? Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word for revelation is the word apocalypsis. We've, we hear this term a lot. Apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic. The people apparently have no idea what the word apocalypse means. The word means revealing. It means uncovering, unveiling. You can imagine your children are playing hide-and-go-seek. And there, one of them is in the living room, balled up on the floor with a blanket covering them over, and they're hiding, and you come and jerk the blanket off. 
That's apocalypsis. That's uncovering, unveiling. Now, how contrary is that to your typical thoughts about this book? How many of you have ever read through the Revelation and said, it's so clear. It all makes sense now. I was confused at Jude, but now it all makes sense. We don't typically think that way, do we? But the Word says that's what it is. Either God the Holy Spirit is a liar, or we've got a problem in our comprehension of Scripture. This book was meant to reveal, to uncover, to unveil, to show what is unseen. It was not written to hide things that everybody understood, but we're going to make them real confusing. That's not why it was given. It was not written to confuse, not written to obfuscate, not written to muddy the waters. It was written to clear up the waters. The Christians in John's day, they were scratching their heads. The letter comes and they say, we get it, we understand. Because it was a revealing, a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a legitimate exegetical question here. When we read that phrase, of Jesus Christ, it could go one of two ways. Either what John is saying is this revelation belongs to Jesus Christ, it's His, or this revelation is about Jesus Christ. Well, in the immediate context, it says that it has been given to Him to show. The revelation was given to Him by His Father, given to Him as mediator to show for the benefit and blessing of His people. So that would fit into the reading, the revelation belonging to Jesus Christ. And then throughout the book, spoiler alert, it's all about Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the letter. So that would also fit into the, 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 the context and the language. This is the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Again, just think, what greater vision can the church have than that of Christ? What do we need to see every day? In any time period, in any location, under any circumstance, what do we have any more need of than to have a clearer sight of the Lord Jesus? The answer is nothing. That's all we're after. In all of our studying, in all of our living, in all of our suffering, what we're after is to know Him, to see Him more clearly so that when we cross through from life to death, we're not, and we will be, but to paint the picture, we're not shocked at what it is, but it's like we're walking in to meet with a dear friend that we've, we've been given greater and greater and greater sights of throughout life. That's what the church needs. That's what this book does. It unveils and lets us see Christ. Now, a word about the genre of this book. The word apocalypse, not only does it mean the unveiling or the revealing, that's why it's called the revelation, but it's also a, an official title of a very common form of literature in John's day and in the Jewish community known as apocalypse. In, in apocalyptic writing, and I'll give you the primary staple of apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing was meant to take a message from a heavenly perspective and interject that message into the seen and known world 
so that people living in the world could see their world from a heavenly perspective. You see, God's perspective on things is not what we see. And what we see is not God's perspective. And when we are struggling, when we're suffering, when we're tempted to be pushed over the edge and we're scratching our heads thinking, Lord, what is happening? All we need to see is what God sees. If we could see it the way God sees it, we would say, oh, that makes perfect sense now. It's all clear. So that's what this book is. It's an apocalyptic letter given to us to see God's perspective because this is where we this is where we get stuck all we ever see is our perspective we we go to work we, we're with our families we're in the world and all we see is our perspective and if that's all we have to run on is our perspective we're going to be an abysmal group of people but God interjects into our world and gives us his perspective and this is what he's done many times throughout history in the Exodus, his people are suffering under Egyptian tyranny. And if there were some living in those days who were still holding on to that covenantal hope, they were probably wondering, Oh God, what about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about Joseph? What, what happened to the promises? And so God comes in power. He shows the Egyptians and the Hebrews that they are powerless against them. He gives them a little bit of a sight as to what he's seeing. He's in power. In Joshua chapter 5, the Israelites are about to go in to take Jericho. And what does Joshua see but the commander of the armies of the Lord? And he says, Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? I love this. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That's all you need to know, Joshua. Now I have come. Take your shoes off. He's letting Joshua get a, a glimpse of the heavenly perspective. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the servant of Elisha is, is afraid because the Syrians are going to come and, and take his master. And Elisha prays, Lord, let him, let him see. Open his eyes so he can see. And the Lord gives him this vision and the hills are full of horses and chariots of fire. A little glimpse of God's perspective on the situation. In Isaiah chapter 6, the year that the king Uzziah died, a king who had been a good king for many, many years, dies. So what's going to happen, Lord? Where we would see political unrest, political uncertainty, Isaiah is given a vision. I saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. A throne in the temple with a king sitting on it. His glory is filling the whole earth. The point is, Isaiah... The king is still on the throne. He's always been on the throne. In the book of Daniel, Daniel's in captivity in Babylon, right in the middle of all of these visions of, of kings and kingdoms rising and falling. Daniel gets this vision of God, the Ancient of Days. And one is presented to him who is like a son of man, and he's given dominion and a kingdom and power it's a vision of God and of His Christ ruling and reigning in spite of and over all competing powers. Interestingly, at the end of Daniel, Daniel is told, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Keep that language in mind. That book is going to be unsealed in the Revelation. And the Revelation re relies heavily on the visions of Daniel. So we see that God is 
for lack of a better term, predictable in this way. We would say He's faithful. This is what He does. When His people need to see Him, He steps in and says, Here I am. Here's what I see. And He does that for our comfort. Because He loves His people. He gives us His perspective. It's the revelation given to the head of the church to give to His church, but it's also the revelation of the head of the church given to His church. It's a revelation of God Himself. Notice also the source under the main heading, the title and purpose of the book. Notice the source of this revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him. God the Father gave this word of unveiling to the Son so that the Son could give it to His people. Following the same pattern as we see throughout the ministry of our Lord in John 8.38, He says, I speak of what I've seen with my Father. John 12.49, I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. We see this picture of mediation. The Lord Jesus here in the Revelation continues His work as mediator, mediating God's goodness to His people. The same mode of revelation that had been used. We see in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, there's one way of speech through the Son. Here, the Father gives the Son this revelation to give to His people. It begins in the mind of God. And then we see that this book, the very existence of this letter, is a work of our mediatorial King. He's mediating God's goodness to His people. We see the blessings of the book even more when we notice the purpose for which this was given to the Son. God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation is for the servants of Christ. And we ask, who are the servants of Christ? Well, we know it's the seven churches that John names. We can also say, I'm a servant of Christ. Can I have this one? It's for us. It's for all of the servants. It is an uncovering for us, revealing to us that something is soon to take place. The events described in this book are not to be postponed for now going on 2,000 years. These things are soon to take place. If the book is to have any relevance to those seven churches, then the things that it describes had to be relevant for them. But at the same time, that phrase, things that must soon take place, doesn't necessitate that all of them have been completely fulfilled and done. There is a view called full preterism, which says everything in the Bible is done. Close it. Welcome to the new heavens and the new earth. That's sort of confusing for me and, and for the Orthodox. That would be considered a heresy. But there are various levels of what we might call partial preterism. We believe some things written here have been fulfilled and yet some things are still to be fulfilled. 
If you're in that line of orthodoxy, you agree somewhere there's a line between what has been fulfilled and what has not been fulfilled, what's still to come. But we know here that the things that John is describing are things that must soon take place. It's not far off in the future in the first century. It also doesn't demand that they finish as soon as they start. Well, there it was. Did, everybody, did anybody see it? Write it down quick, John. That's not what the language demands. In light of this phrase, things that must soon take place, and the phrase at the end of verse 3, the time is near, the association with Daniel is again very important. In Daniel 2, 28 and 29, Daniel says, God has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now that phrase, has made known, in Daniel 2.28, is the same word that's used in Revelation 1. He made it known. God had made known to Nebuchadnezzar things that would be in the latter days. He says, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. The focus in the visions of the book of Daniel were the latter days. Things that would be after this. The time of the end. We come to this phrase here, things that must soon take place. The point is not necessarily to set out a historical timeline, but to show that what John is writing is the fulfillment of what John or what uh, Daniel saw and what King Nebuchadnezzar saw. The idea is... What Daniel saw and sealed up to be revealed in the latter days, Christ now makes known to John, letting John know that what Daniel saw is what John and his contemporaries are experiencing. That was sealed up for the latter days. John, welcome to the latter days. We've got to go back to the book of Acts. Welcome to the latter days. Are we in the latter days? Are we in the end times? Yes, we've been for centuries now. So the title and purpose of the book tell us that God wants His people to see their world from His perspective and specifically how Jesus Christ relates to that world. Second heading, the method of communication. The way that this book has come to us is very different from many other books of the Bible and that affects the way that we interpret it. First, there is this odd chain of transmission beginning at the end of verse 1. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we've already seen God the Father, the source and fountain of all divine revelation, gives this message to the Son, the mediator and culmination of all divine revelation. The Son sends an angel to the apostle John. John bears witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. You see this chain? Father, Son, Angel. We could say John then carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing it to the churches. There's, that's a pretty long chain. And a lot of the confusion about the book itself stems from a misunderstanding of the various links in this chain. We might read the book and ask, why does the Revelation seem so unlike every other book of the Bible? It's not like any other book of the Bible, in case you haven't noticed. And the answer is because it was communicated to John, the author, in a different way. Even Daniel, with all of his visions, is not the same as the Revelation. It's sort of a, a, a back and forth between narrative and vision. 
Notice verse 1b again. He made it known. The word here, the word in the Greek translation of Daniel, the word means to signify. To better help us understand it, we might would better pronounce it signify. The word means to reveal using signs. That's the definition of the word. You can't get around it. You either take that word out and read it with a wooden literalism, or you leave that word in there and you have to understand that something is being made known using signs. John uses this word three times in his gospel when Jesus speaks about his death. John 12, 32 and 33, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John comments, he said this to show, same word, to signify by what kind of death he was going to die. Now Jesus made no mention of crucifixion. He just painted this word picture of himself being lifted up from the earth and that word picture was meant to convey the image of crucifixion. How else does anybody die being lifted up from the earth? John or Jesus repeatedly uses a form of this word in the Gospels whenever people ask for a sign. And Jesus says, a crooked generation seeks for a sign. They were asking Him, do something that we can see that will point to your authority and your power and your divinity. And like all signs, as I've said before, the sign is not the end. You don't pull off the interstate at the exit sign and say, here we are. I don't see where we're going. The sign points you to something else. Again, if you're going to stick to a wooden literalism, I think you've missed the first verse of the book. The question is, then, are these signs simply word pictures like we just saw? Or are these things that could actually be visualized with the eyes as when Paul used this language when he concluded the first letter to the Thessalonians. And he said, I sign with my own hand so that you may know this is the sign of my genuineness. They would read it. Look at that. That's Paul's handwriting. That's the handwriting of the apostle. What does that mean? That shows that he's genuine. That He loves us. A visual sign. So which was it? Is it just words or is it visible symbols? Look at the end of verse 2. John bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Visualized with the eyes. God's Word, the testimony of Jesus Christ, John saw it. Now when we hear that, we think Word. I can, I can read words. I can hear words. I don't see words. So how can this be? God made it known using symbols, signs that were meant to convey God's Word. We'll see this over and over throughout the Revelation that John will hear something. That's not the end. He'll hear it and then he sees. And what he sees interprets what he hears. Why? Because it was made known to him and he testified to the things he saw, not simply to the things that he 
heard. It's a book conveyed using visual signs, but the signs are not the end in themselves. They point to other things. And again, it's apocalyptic, so we're, we're adding these layers. It's also apocalyptic, so the signs and symbols are meant to convey to us God's perspective on the things that we can see. So, if you take the image literally, you have to reject the word for signify. If you take the image to merely represent something as everybody knew it, then you have to reject the genre of apocalypse. The point is that God is conveying His perspective through symbols and signs. The signs were conveyed to John by an angel who was sent by Christ to show John the revelation, give it to him by God the Father. All of that so that the people of God would be made aware of the things that must soon take place. Again, stop and consider what value we should place on this book. What value? How does this book compare to other books of the Bible and in our minds, in our thinking. You know, we love John 6, John 10, Ephesians 1, Romans 9. How much value do we place on the revelation? God the Father has given it to God the Son. God the Son sent an angel to give it to John who was carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote it out, the things that he saw to give to the churches so that we would know the things that must soon take place. This is a valuable letter. If only estimated by how much, and speaking reverently, how much effort is put into just getting it in our hands. This long chain of father, son, angel, spirit, and writing. And then how reasonable would it be for us to come to this book and be excited about learning from it just to satisfy vain curiosities. How reasonable would it be to read this book just so that we could have a one-up on somebody else who's, they're so ignorant, they don't, even know that, they don't even know that word in the first verse. I'm not sure what it is, but they don't even know it. They're so ignorant. Is that the way that we ought to come to God's Word? And especially a word that has been transmitted so intricately. How reasonable would it be for us to come to this book simply to validate our eschatological assumptions? Again, assuming that the book has something to do with the eschaton. So as we move into this book, I want to make it very clear that I have no intentions of feeding any type of sensationalism that surrounds this book. Invite your friends and family to hear the gospel, not to hear the revelation debunked or decoded or whatever. Because that's not why we're looking at this book. Lastly, I want you to notice the blessing of reception. In verse 3, we encounter the first of seven Beatitudes in the book, which gives us insight into the original manner in which the letter was delivered and also pronounces a blessing upon two separate groups involved in that delivery. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That word blessed is the same word used in the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, it's that description of that in, internal joy that is only had by the believer, a joy given by the Spirit of God. That blessedness is here pronounced. Now, throughout the letter, seven times in the letter, there are seven Beatitudes. Blessedness is pronounced upon those who die in the Lord, who stay awake, 
who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, who share in the first resurrection, who keep the words of this letter, and who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Here the blessing is for the one who reads it aloud and those who hear and keep it. This gives us a clue into the original delivery of the letter, and all of this is important in, in the way that we typically think about this letter. It was meant to be read aloud. So common people got together. Nobody said, take out your Bibles and turn to. They sat down and they said, we have a message from the beloved John. And they all sat down and it would have been read out loud by people who did not have a copy to look at, who did not have a screen to look at, and they were expected to have some sort of insight into what it meant. It wasn't a mystery. The reading would have been in the context of the local church, again like the, the Colossian and Laodicean sharing letters. It was a common practice for everyone to hear everyone else's mail in the first century, including all of the names that were mentioned in the letters. They heard it. You imagine Chloe's people when they thought that they got a, a secret out to Paul? There's some division going on. You need, to, you need to say something to these people. And then they open the letter. It has come to be known to come to my attention by Chloe's people. <gasps> now we know who's spreading secrets. Now we know how the word got out. This, this stuff was open and in public for everyone to hear. This is how they did in the first century. They would stand and read these letters out loud. So there's a blessing pronounced for those who read. It wasn't always the presiding elder. It would be someone that the elder chose. Just like in the synagogue system, those presiding would choose somebody. You read today. And it was and is a blessing to have the opportunity to stand in the gathered assembly and read the words of the living God. And they knew that it was. So there's a blessing for the reader and a blessing for the hearer and keeper. The church is gathered and John says, Blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it. That word keep is the same word that Jesus used when He said that we are to teach all nations to observe all things that He's commanded. That's the same word. Keep, observe. Hear it, take it to heart, adopt it as yours, and pattern your life after what is said. There is no blessing for hearers only. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. Again, I want to compare this to the, the typical notion that we have when we come to the Revelation. How many of us come to the Revelation and we say, finally, some practical theology that I can take in and, and put to practice in my life? We don't typically read it that way. The blessing is not for those who simply hear. The blessing is for those who hear and keep. If this book is interesting to you just so that you'll finally understand it, no blessing. If you've come to this book expecting not to be poked, prodded, challenged, rebuked, reproved, exhorted, and corrected by it, you're going to be sorely upset, especially in chapters 2 and 3. 
If you think that the revelation is going to leave you where you are, you're mistaken. There's either blessing for those who hear it and keep it, or curses for those who hear it and say, I don't want to keep it. I'm satisfied with understanding it. Notice we also read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This is the second explicit reference to genre. There is apocalypse, but it's also prophecy. Contrary to the modern view that it's all future prediction, this is prophecy just like almost all biblical prophecy. The old prophets took the Word of God and delivered it in such a way to, in their contemporary setting that demanded its hearers subject themselves to the all-seeing eye of God and do the work of obeying the Word. And very often the prophecies, the, the future predictions, was simply the prophet saying God's going to do what He said He was going to do. It wasn't just this out of the blue seeing of things that nobody had ever heard of before. It was promises of blessing and curse based on obedience and cursing. The book of the Revelation is that. It's prophecy. It's God's Word brought to bear on the hearers demanding that they subject themselves to what it says and do the work of obeying. That's what it is. It's prophecy. It uses the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. There is more Bible in this book than anywhere else in the Bible. If you had to compare it, almost every book of the Bible is used in the book of the Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. All of Scripture points to the time. All of it. There's a time. That time is the time of the Messiah. The reign of of Christ. John was their partner in the kingdom. If the kingdom was in existence then, then the time had come. The kingdom exists now. The time is now. The time has come. And that's why this book is, is not to be put on the shelf as some mystery to be taken out in whoever, however many years. But it, it is to be studied now. The blessings are for now. So very quickly, some doctrines that we can draw from all of this. I'll be brief. Under two categories, thoughts of God and thoughts of His book. We see in these first three verses, God cares for His people. God shows His care for His people by speaking to His people. That's an act of love. And He does it specifically by revealing to us His perspective. It is for our comfort. Believe it or not. And we don't use these words the way the world uses them. But believe it or not, God is after your contentment. Not the way the world describes contentment, but the way He describes contentment. God is after comfort in your soul. He wants your soul to be at rest. Think about the struggles that you have. Just think about a problem that's going on in your life right now. It's, a, it's an issue. It's, I'm, I'm anxious over this. It's bothering me. Uh, just, I'm struggling with this. Whatever it might be, that's not God's fault. It's our fault for not opening the Word where He has clearly revealed His will and just obeying it. If we will hear and keep 
the Revelation, or any other book of the Bible. God uses it to comfort and bring contentment. Does that mean we live lavish lives like the world? No. Read the Revelation, but you'll be content. Again, so many of our struggles are because we don't believe that God loves His people, that God has spoken to His people, and that God has spoken for our comfort and for our good. We don't believe it. And so we struggle and we wrestle in all of our struggles. We're just banging our head against a wall because we won't step two inches to the side and walk through the doorway that says God's way, God's prescription. And we just beat against the wall. I can't do it. It's so hard. I'm just, I, I just don't know how to do this. I don't know what we're going to do. God has spoken. If we believe God has spoken, then we should look to it and hear it and keep it, believing that He cares for His people and His book. We believe God's Word is clear. God provides clarity for His Word in His Word. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We come to the Scriptures and we say, Well, I'm just having trouble understanding this. I just don't understand it. I don't get it. Close it again. That's not how it works. If you want understanding, open the book. The unfolding of the words gives light. You say, well, I'm just not very smart. It imparts understanding to the simple. It provides clarity for itself. We come to the revelation and we think, man, I'm, finally, I'm, I'm glad to finally get some insight into this book that is so mysterious. Okay, well, tell me about that insight you have into Isaiah or Amos or Leviticus. Is this book any different? In most of our experience, is this book any different than the majority of, of the other books of the Bible? We don't know it because we don't read it. And then again, we bang our heads against a wall. I wonder why I can't get it. I wonder why I can't get it. I'm just so ignorant. I just don't know. I just don't know. And the book lies dormant in the car or on the shelf. God cares for His people. He speaks to His people. He speaks for our comfort. His Word is clear. His Word provides clarity for itself. Application then. Read it. Pray for understanding. Pray for your congregation as we walk through this book together. And brothers, please, by all means, pray for those who preach the Word. Let's pray.